You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. Just how did the COVID-19 pandemic spread to humans? It's a question that for many seemed for a long time to have an answer. But in recent weeks, a growing number of scientists and now even the president himself are calling for a second look. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi, and today on the program, we're going to re-examine the competing theories about the origin of the virus that causes COVID-19. A bit later in the program, we'll discuss the high-stakes politics that have helped make this question so highly charged. They have an interest in finding the truth, but the politics are still all bad. But first up, we're going to take a look at what the science can tell us so far. For that, we're welcoming on now Dr. David Relman, a professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology with Stanford University. Last month, he and 17 other scientists published an open letter calling for a renewed investigation into the origins of COVID-19. We're going to talk to him now about that decision. Dr. Relman, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So for many of us, I think that it's fair to say, until very recently, the conventional wisdom has been that the origin of this pandemic is more or less settled science. Uh, The prevailing theory, of course, is that the virus likely originated in bats and then at some point late in 2019 made the jump to humans, uh, perhaps through an intermediary species, perhaps uh, there was a live animal market involved somewhere in the mix. Some of the details have to be worked out, but uh, the impression that I, I think a lot of us have is that the broad outlines there are more or less agreed upon. But there has always been a competing theory as well, That being that uh, the virus was released accidentally by a virology lab located in Wuhan, China. Of course, the same city in which uh, the first known infections occurred. That theory, often called the lab leak theory, was for a long time considered by many to be a fringe idea, even uh, described as a conspiracy theory at times. But now a growing number of scientists are saying there simply is not enough evidence to rule it out and that it deserves more consideration. Uh, And I think that that is more or less the gist of the letter that you and your colleagues wrote last month. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about why you felt you had to speak up. Yeah, I think many of us had several purposes in mind. One was to um, call attention to the fact that now more than a year, almost a year and a half into this pandemic, we still um, have relatively little good information on exactly how the pandemic began. And these two ideas... Um, two hypotheses, um, still both remain on the table. They're both plausible and credible. And yet what we were seeing was a lot of um, very strong assumption and statement being made, even by our own colleagues who thought one of these must be the case. Um, Many of our colleagues in science were assuming it was natural. Um, But we just wanted to maybe cause uh, everyone to take a pause and ask, what is it we really know and don't know? And just to be clear about what we, what we mean when we talk about a lab leak theory, we're 
probably not talking about a scenario in which scientists were cooking up a virus for malicious purposes and then unleashed it on the world. We're talking about probably more of an accidental scenario. How, how do you envision it might have gone? This is exactly why the topic has been so difficult to talk about, because people have made assumptions about what one means in talking about a lab. There are actually a number of possible scenarios. The one that for me, I think is important to acknowledge is the possibility that well-meaning scientists were simply trying to grow viruses as, as they are, straight out of the samples that they had collected by the thousands from bats elsewhere in China. And in the process of, of trying to grow viruses, they, um, unbeknownst to them, grew SARS-CoV-2 from one of their samples and didn't realize it simply because, first, it didn't cause any obvious harm to the cells in which they were growing their, their viruses, and therefore they thought nothing had happened. And secondly, that by growing it to a partial degree, they had created a big risk and had unavoid, you know, unbeknownst to them, infected themselves and, and then uh, were infected without symptoms. And all of that could have simply happened without their aware awareness and, and, and could have led to someone leaving a lab infected. Speaking with Dr. David Relman with Stanford University, let's introduce uh, just a, a little bit of a technical term, uh, this term gain-of-function research, basically the idea that researchers might take a virus and intentionally give it new features, and uh, the idea being that you'd be able to study that virus that may one day naturally occur and then spread to humans, and, and if it ever did, you'd have a jump on it. You'd already have some research to tell you how to deal with it. Uh, is there any evidence that that the virus uh, COVID-19, the, the, the virus that causes COVID-19, might be the product of this gain-of-function research? We, we can't really say. The, the reason is this. This is a virus for which we don't have any truly close relatives. We don't have its parents. And because we don't have its parents, we don't know whether they might be found in a laboratory or might be found in nature. They haven't been found anywhere. Now, if this were to be the result of, let's say, genetic engineering, recombinant engineering in a lab, one would presumably have to have very close relatives with which to work and do the swapping and the, the very limited amount of evolution that one can do in a lab. We don't have any evidence uh, that they had, in fact, such close relatives, but they haven't revealed everything about the work they were doing. And, and I think it's still at least you know, conceptually possible that they had some closer relatives that they were working on to try to understand better. And this was an experiment to, to try to understand them uh, that they undertook, and the result could have been SARS-CoV-2. Let's talk about some of the investigation into this uh, origin story that has already taken place. Uh, very notably, the World Health Organization released a report in late March that uh, I think has been uh, largely considered insufficient, and uh, your uh, your own letter was in part a response to this report. Uh, so the World Health Organization uh, report, which was uh, produced in conjunction with uh, uh, Chinese scientists, it came to the conclusion that a uh, lab leak was uh, extremely unlikely. But uh, I think that you find the evidence that they're basing that on uh, insufficient, or, or at least that they haven't released enough of it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. When, when you look at the report carefully, there's a fair bit of information about their effort to explore the natural spillover hypothesis. Although, frankly, they didn't find SARS-CoV-2 anywhere in the natural environment. 
um, other than in patients. So and they, you might it, expect it to find it in the wildlife nearby if it was to spill over. That's right. That's right. Now it, it still may be that it's out there, and we just haven't done enough work to find it. So it doesn't rule that out by any means. But they didn't rule it in either. Hmm. And uh, on the flip side, they went to one of the research institutes in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and apparently sat down in a conference room with the director and asked some questions pertaining to the possibility of work at the lab that could have led to a leak. And what they were given apparently were some summary statements, some conclusions that had been already drawn by the folks at the Institute. Um, they didn't seem to see or be given any primary or raw original data. Hmm. They were given conclusions essentially. And all of that is summarized in simply four pages out of more than 300. And in those four pages, are simply these conclusions that they were um, that they were provided, and it seems they then chose to simply accept those conclusions as statements of fact. When in fact, we just don't have the evidence on which those conclusions were based. All right, going to reintroduce you real quick uh, for anybody just joining us. This is KCBS in depth. We have on right now Dr. David Roman, professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology with Stanford University, talking to him about COVID 19's origin and why so many right now are not satisfied with the answers that we've gotten so far. So, looking at the uh, flip side of the coin, one point that uh, uh, skeptics of the lab leak uh, are, are pointing out is they say that the the lab itself, as you said, uh, the uh, Wuhan Institute for Virology, uh, the lab contends that none of its coronavirus samples are similar to the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, so they have released a lot of their research. Uh, we uh, Folks presumably knew a lot about what the scientists at this virology lab were looking into. If they had been looking into something uh, similar to COVID-19, wouldn't we know about it? I'm not sure we would. Um they, first of all, had one of, if not the largest collection of bat samples and um, sequence information from those samples. They have not made available the complete inventory of what they had collected and all of the sequences that they had generated. In fact, they used to have some of that sequence data, raw data, available to the public um, by request on, a, on an open server. They took that down. They also have published very few of their more complete sequences, even though they have previously published pieces of many more viruses. So there's good reason to think that they have a lot more data. Do we fault them or find that to be you know, a sign of guilt? No, not at all. Many scientists withhold information because they simply feel it's, it's incomplete. There's not a story yet that can be told. And that may well be what they were thinking. I think what we're saying, and at least what I am saying, is at this point in time, now with a pandemic that has unfolded and caused incredible harm and, and suffering, there's a different threshold that we ought to be applying. If you have any pieces of information, any possibility of enabling others to learn more, which I think they do, then this is the time to make all of that available, even if it isn't a complete story. I think. We're simply asking them to, to reveal more than we would normally ask from a, from a regular scientific uh, investigation or scientific um, study and help us all work together to understand what they have in hand. 
that leads me to the next question that I wanted to put to you, because I know uh, I read a little bit about your your background, and I know that you have advised the U.S. government on past infectious disease threats. So this is an issue that you've thought about a, a lot in the past. And, and talking about what there might be to learn from nailing down this origin story, how, how might that information be useful? You know, if, if we are trying to prevent future threats, what would understanding the origin of COVID-19 do to better further that effort? Yeah, this is a really, really important question. And and I think uh, this also kind of supports the, the importance of undertaking this investigation. First of all, um, we know that a lot of really important dangerous pathogens are still out there in nature. Most viruses and bacteria are harmless, but there are some amazingly virulent ones still to be discovered. The work the Wuhan Institute was doing was designed to try to um, reveal some of that as yet unrecognized um, biological threat. So the question then becomes, how do we do this in a safe and prudent manner? And what I think we need to learn now is what exactly were the approaches being taken there and elsewhere in the world? And can we learn how best to find and understand diversity in nature without creating the very things that we're most afraid of? Hmm. And I, I suppose in closing, I believe this is another topic that you and your colleagues have addressed, just the fact that these questions about the origin of the virus throughout this pandemic has also been associated with uh, a fair amount of vitriol and, uh, frankly, racism directed against Chinese Americans and others of uh, Chinese heritage. Is there, in your view, a way to decouple these two areas of inquiry and uh, find a way to talk about this that does not stoke that kind of hatred, that kind of anger, and that kind of recrimination for something that uh, Chinese people obviously have nothing to do with. I'm really glad you raised that. In fact, a number of the people who signed our letter voiced that concern within our little group. How can we frame this such that it doesn't further feed um, a lot of hatred? And clearly that's a risk. We, We very much wanted to avoid that. One thing we did was to call out in our letter the incredibly heroic efforts by Chinese scientists and physicians early in this pandemic to address the problem and to talk openly about what they were seeing and what they were worried about. That happened. They were very brave in doing that. And we we call that out specifically. Second, how do we further diffuse this? I think, you know, because in fact, we in the United States live in a glass house. We should be very careful about throwing stones. We need to be very upfront about the fact that we have labs in this country that have made mistakes and and suffered accidents. In fact, we're not terribly open about that. And many good investigative reporters like yourself have revealed this information that we now know about the, the frequency with which there are accidents here in the United States. So I would begin a dialogue by first saying, look, this is, we are all very similar in, in purpose and in background and experience and in the problem of trying to understand risk. We have made mistakes here in the United States. Everybody does. Let's talk about how we can understand this better and just be more honest about what each of us, you know, wants to be doing and needs to be doing and how we can do that best. All right, call for honesty right there. And honesty is something that's hard to argue with. Uh, We have been speaking to Dr. David Relman, professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology with Stanford University. Dr. David Relman, thanks so much for your time. Most welcome.
You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, we're considering the growing calls for renewed investigation into the origin of COVID-19. Up next, we're going to take a look at the politics of all this, because of course, since day one, the pandemic response has been driven by an awful lot more than science alone. Washington Post columnist Josh Rogan has been covering some of the key decisions that have shaped the U.S. response. He's also just written a book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. I spoke with him recently about how partisan politics and tangled international ties have complicated the search for answers. Josh Rogan, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Great to be with you. So you've been writing about the lab leak possibility for more than a year now. Recently, you wrote in one of your columns that, quote, the fact that the origin issue, and especially the lab accident theory, has become politicized is a tragedy. How, in your view, did the theory become politicized, and why is that a tragedy? Uh, two really big questions for you right off the hop. Yeah, sure. Great questions, actually. You know, while I was writing this book uh, in my quarantine in my basement in 2020, uh, I was coming up with more and more uh, evidence and more and talking to more and more people inside the U.S. government uh, who believed that the lab leak theory, or th- in other words, the theory that the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic was in some way related to a human error at one of these Wuhan labs? Uh, not that it was true, but that it was that we couldn't discount it. In other words, that there was enough circumstantial evidence that we couldn't rule it out, and therefore it should be investigated. Not that we think we know, or not that we've come to a conclusion. Uh, just that it couldn't be ruled out. Just that the from what we could see with our eyes and with our intelligence assets meant that we needed to take a look at these labs. And these people couldn't say that out loud for a very understandable reason. The Chinese government was blackmailing the U.S. government directly to shut up about the origin of the coronavirus and their suspicions about the labs uh, by withholding blackmailing our... Blackmailing in what sense? With, directly blackmailing by saying, we won't, we won't allow your masks and PPE to come uh, in, in the planes to your shores to alleviate your ever-sickening population and to help with your response if you don't shut up about the origin of the virus. And now that was a, a direct threat that was delivered to the State Department, but also an indirect threat delivered by President Xi Jinping to President Donald Trump uh, in a phone call in uh, a, a, that's documented in the book. And basically, the, the Trump administration people, those who believed that the lab leak theory uh, was possible and should be investigated, had to be quiet about it for just that reason. Now, I stumbled upon some diplomatic cables in April 2020 that revealed that U.S. diplomats had had a lot of concerns about the safety at these labs for years before the outbreak, and moreover, that they had identified the Wuhan Institute of Virology's specific research on bat coronaviruses and how they infect humans as risky research that deserved more monitoring, especially in these unsafe labs. And those warnings in 2018 were ignored, but in 2020, again, when a bat coronavirus pandemic broke out next to the labs, a lot of the people inside the U.S. government were like, hey, wait a minute, what about those cables from a couple years ago? We always had concerns about these labs, and that was seen, again, as not proof, not a smoking gun, but circumstantial evidence that pointed to a need to investigate those labs. And when I published that information, uh, against the wishes of the Trump administration, actually, because, again, they wanted to get our masks, they wanted to get our PPE, they didn't want to upset the Chinese government at that moment in time, but I did it anyway. At that point, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo turned on a dime and said, yeah, we really think it was the lab. And then President Trump was asked 
do you think it was the lab? Have you seen any evidence? And he said, yeah, basically, I think it was the lab. I've seen a bunch of evidence. I can't tell you about it. So that was the way that the Trump administration sort of politicized the issue because they were talking about it openly without showing that direct evidence that they had. Uh, and because the Trump administration had a, a, a well-earned credibility problem, people didn't believe them. And then here came the scientists who were the best friends of the lab. And we're finding out a lot more details about the, these interactions now as FOIAs are, are issued and emails are released. But these scientists who had a clear conflict of interest uh, organized to push a narrative that uh, the lab leak theory was a conspiracy theory and you shouldn't talk about it. And uh, a lot of journalists went with that narrative again because they were skeptical of the Trump administration and because no one had thought that a bunch of scientists would get together to push a false narrative. Uh, and a year later, we, we, we see now in the emails why they did that. They did that clearly because... They wanted to deflect attention away from their own collaboration with that very exact same lab. In other words, if the lab leak theory were true, uh, these American scientists would have their entire life's work called into question, and they didn't want that. So that, that's, that's what the conflict of interest was. And so f both sides politicized it. And then, of course, the Democrats, who were attacking Trump, uh, said that the lab leak theory was racist. And, of course, Trump said a lot of racist things related to the origin of the coronavirus, but... None of those politics in Washington really had anything to do with the fact of where, how this uh, pandemic originated. In other words, it's not really a political question. It's not even a scientific question. It's a forensic question. It's a historical fact of how the outbreak started, a fact that we need to figure out, you know, that we need to investigate. And, uh, you know, now we're trying to untangle all of that and take the politics out of it. It turns out to be very difficult. And there are still a lot of forces trying to keep it politicized. So that's why we're in the mess we're in. Yeah, let's uh, update to where exactly in the mess uh, we are in right now. Uh, we are seeing a bit of a more robust response from the Biden administration. Uh, a little bit over a week ago, Biden directed U.S. intelligence agencies to investigate uh, the origins of COVID-19. A pretty clear signal that uh, he is taking the lab leak theory as credible. Uh, the rest of the White House uh, is as well. How far do you think that that directive is going to go toward getting the answers that you think we need? No, we don't know exactly. I've spoken with very, very senior Biden administration officials about this. And keep in mind, this is not their first time asking the, in the intelligence community to check it out. This is their second time asking the intelligence community to check mm. it out. And the first time, the difference is that this time there's, they're talking about it publicly, whereas the first time they didn't tell anybody. And the intelligence, what they said is the intelligence community came back and three of the two of the agencies said they thought it was most likely natural spillover one agency we don't know which one said it was most likely it came from the lab and the rest of the agency said we have no idea okay and then it came out later that the you know intelligence agencies hadn't really investigated the lab leak theory thoroughly in the first place in other words the new york times reported that they didn't even look at their own computers at their own lab leak intelligence that was sitting on their own computers they never examined it they never analyzed it in, in in 18 months so it was very clear to the biden people that uh the intelligence community hadn't done the digging that they were supposed to be doing and again there's a clear reason for that it's because you know again while this was erupting in 2020 and the intelligence community was at war with the trump administration they didn't want to validate trump's theory they thought their products were being abused by Trump's political team for his political reelection, and they had reason to think that because, again, even the intelligence community didn't escape gross politicization inside of uh, over the course of the Trump administration. A lot of the roles got a lot of mixed up, and that's what the Biden people are trying to untangle. So what Biden officials tell me very simply is that they're expanding the scope of the investigation to include the U.S. national labs, to include NIH and NIAID, which is run by 
uh, Dr. Fauci, and to also look for lab information at all the other U.S. agencies that are related to the lab. That includes the EcoHealth Alliance, a nonprofit organization that funneled U.S. taxpayer money to the lab and supported what's known as the bat coronavirus research that some people call gain-of-function, some people say it's not gain-of-function, and uh, USAID, the DOD, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Agriculture, the Department of Homeland Security, and more. So we, you know, people didn't really understand, even inside the intelligence community, that this network of labs, this network of labs, Chinese labs in Wuhan and Beijing, uh, were doing a lot of stuff that they didn't tell us about. That's what the intelligence showed. Uh, it showed that there was another side of the lab where they took our well-meaning cooperation and engagement and our money and did another project with the Chinese military, the project they didn't tell us about, that they continue not to admit to. That's what the intelligence showed. And the Biden administration, having confirmed a lot of that intelligence uh, and having checked it, is now looking into both theories, you know, for the first time, again, 18 months later, because they're not, they weren't there when it got politicized. They don't have a stake in the outcome. They don't really care. They, they have an interest in finding the truth, but the politics are still uh, all bad. Yeah, so a lot of issues that this all raises. I want to reintroduce you real quick. Uh, for anybody just joining us, this is KCBS In-Depth right now. We're taking a closer look at the growing calls for a deeper investigation into the origin of COVID-19 and why it is that such an investigation has not happened already. Joining us for some perspective is Josh Rogan, Washington Post columnist who's been writing about the so-called lab leak possibility for more than a year now. Also the author of a new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Uh, but uh, to kind of round things out, Looking forwards to what steps can be taken now, obviously it's so long ago that this uh, virus broke out and uh, the, the breadcrumb trail has uh, really been there for so long. And uh, how much can we really expect to learn from an investigation at this point, especially given the fact that uh, we can expect China to push back uh, against what uh, investigators try to do? I mean, at, at this point... What can we reasonably hope to achieve, and is it worth the potential cost of uh, up upsetting uh, a, a global competitor such as China? Yeah, well, if uncovering the truth about the death of 595,000 Americans uh, isn't worth risking offending the delicate sensibilities of the Chinese Communist Party, what would be? What would be the thing where we would say, oh, we might have to do something that the Chinese government is going to complain about. By the way, they complain about everything. You could tweet about Hong Kong and have the NBA fined for to the tune of $400 million. So I don't really buy that for one because like they're always complaining about everything. Okay, But this is something that I think is worth risking them getting a little miffed Okay, because 590,000 Americans died and we need to find out why now. You know, I, I have heard from Biden administration officials, well, they're not going to let us into the lab, so we're not, what are we going to do about that? And to that I say, well, in no like trial or investigation would you ask politely for the defendant to hand over all of the incriminating evidence, and then if they said no, throw up your hands and say, okay, well, I guess we're out of options, let's close the investigation. No, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. You would do everything you could to collect that evidence, despite that they don't want the, the, the incriminating evidence found. Of course they don't want it. That's why they've been orchestrating a massive cover-up for over a year, right? So we can't expect them to like it or to help us incriminate them, okay? And that means adding some pressure and using the tools of American power and diplomacy and influence in conjunction with our allies to bring to bear some leverage on the Chinese government to do the right thing and tell us what they know. 
And what I think what you're getting at is that, you know, at the end, because it has been a year, because the Chinese government went to such lengths to jail anybody who didn't tow the party line and to hide and destroy any relevant evidence, what we may end up with is not a smoking gun. What we may end up with is not a preponderance of, I mean, not a, not a, a 100%, you know, proof case. We may end up with a preponderance of the evidence or enough evidence to make a case that, beyond a reasonable doubt that the lab was likely connected. And then we'll have a decision to make as a government and as a society again. And that decision will be, okay, well, let's say we're only 80% sure it was the lab. Do we still want to do nothing? Are you still going to argue that we should just keep on doing business with this lab as if nothing had ever happened, as if the world wasn't continually going, as if they weren't still hiding the information right now? You know what I mean? It's preposterous to think that we would just throw up our hands and be like, oh, this is hard. Oh, it's hard to get the Chinese to tell us what's in the... No, no, that's not, there's no excuse. You know, I get the biggest crisis in human, in human history, public health crisis, demands a response. It demands an investigation. What if there had been no 9-11 commission? So I don't think we have the luxury of just saying, oh, this is hard. We're not going to be able to do it. No, we're going to have to do it. And we're going to have to push our leaders to do it, despite the fact that it's complicated for our diplomacy and for their politics, but tough. All right. Well, as you said, uh, a very big crisis and very big questions to go with it. Potentially, we might see one day some big answers, too. Uh, We have been speaking to Josh Rogan, Washington Post columnist covering foreign policy and national security, also the author of a new book, Chaos Under Heaven, Trump, She, and the Battle for the 21st Century. Josh Rogan, thanks so much. Anytime. Thank you all for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.